Good morning, everyone. My name is Luke. If you're joining us and you're a visitor, I'm going to remind you guys in person. I know we've been meeting in person and we've kind of been waited to this room and now we're we're, we're leaning back in towards the camera as well. So we're going to be in between speaking to person and speaking to camera. I'm trusting that God is going ahead and is with us in our homes as we come to God's word. Um, really excited to share with you a message from Mark. Uh, if you've got your Bibles, open your Bibles now, follow along. If your Bible is on your phone like me or on your iPad like me, uh, follow along. Highlight what stands out to you. We're going to spend a good chunk of time, Mark chapter 10, verse 13 to 31. But before we do, let me just... Um, I want to put something before us. I read an interesting book a while back. It's called King's Cross by a man named Tim Keller. And uh, I mean, Tim Keller is like the Yoda. He's like my Yoda, so to speak. Um, and uh, he, he speaks in this book about the incredible vulnerability of Christianity. It's just one of the things he's passing by, and he says Christianity is incredibly vulnerable. It's more vulnerable than any of the other major religions of the world because Christianity has got no geographic center. It's got no home base, if you will. And he's quoting from historian, Christian historian Andrew Walls, and this is what he, Andrew Walls points out, that all the other major religions have a home base, which is invariably the same place where the religion began. It's still the power base today. If you think of Islam, which began in Arabia and Mecca, and, and still today, the Middle East is the home base of Islam today, geographically. Buddhism as well in the Far East, um, and still today, that's the center of Buddhism. Um, There we go. Uh, Hinduism uh, began in India, and Hinduism is still predominantly an Indian religion. Christianity, though, is the exception because the center of Christianity is always moving. Originally, it began in Jerusalem, and it wasn't long before it was adopted by the Hellenistic sort of barbarians, and it spread through there, and then it migrated to Rome, and then uh, migrated from Rome to the rest of Northern Europe and to, to the Saxons as well, and then, and then across to America. The center of Christianity is always shifting. In contrast to all the other major religions. And recently, it's shifting again. And in fact, in the 20th century, it's been receding from Europe and the Americas. Well, Europe and North America. But now in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. In fact, Christianity is growing in these continents at uh, 10 times the population growth. In the 21st century, for the first time in history, more than 50% of Christians now live in the Southern Hemisphere. The year 1900, there was 1% of Africa were Christians. Now, Christianity is nearly 50% of Africa. And Walls was asked the question, why does this happen? Why is it that the center of Christianity is always moving? If the, if the center of all other major religions stays constant, why is Christianity's center always changing? And this is what he said. He said, there's a fragility at the heart of Christianity. It's fragile, like the vulnerability of the cross. The cross was all about vulnerability of power, all about pouring out of resources, all about serving. And, and Walls hinted that, that when Christianity is in a place of power and wealth for too long a period, what happens is the radical message of sin and grace and the cross become muted. And that when Christianity is in a, in a, in a base of power and wealth, it's not long before Christianity becomes translated into a nice, safe respectable religion for do-gooders. And eventually Christianity becomes dormant there. And it seems to migrate somewhere else, invariably away from wealth, invariably away from power. 
Today we continue Mark's gospel journey as we look at two encounters that Jesus has. Uh, with, with, uh, th- th- these encounters center around wealth and they center around power. And, and what we're going to do is we look at these encounters, we're going to swap the order. We'll read the passage through and then we'll, 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 we'll start working with the second encounter and we'll land with the first one. I want to warn you though that at times a little bit towards the middle it might get a little bit confusing but that's deliberate and it will become clear again. Does that make sense? Great, let's go. Mark chapter 10 and verse 13. Jesus now is, um, is going along ministering. Last week we heard what Jesus is teaching the disciples about marriage. He's teaching about marriage and following him. And now we see he develops these two concepts of power and wealth as well. And how, how that is informed by our followership of Christ. Verse 13. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. They they rebuked them for bringing the kids. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. And he said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them. for, For to such things belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Verse 17, and as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what is it that I must do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And Jesus said to him, so, and he said to to Jesus, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, How difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. This shocked them. But Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished now. And they they said to Jesus, Then who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you that there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Let's pray. Father, as we, uh, Jesus, as we come before your word, we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us. We ask that you would speak to every single one of us, God. There's nothing off limits in our lives. For those who are, uh, who are here today in, in, in homes and in person, who are searching and wondering, Jesus, what, what, what does it look like to follow you? Pray today you would speak to us of that. Every single one of us, God. Amen. 
Okay, more tough sayings. Jesus is ratcheting things up. It's a beautiful piece of scripture we're getting into. And as I said, we're not going to start with with verse 13 to 16. We're going to jump in at verse 17, and then we'll double back at the end. Let's pick up in verse 17. And as Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him, and he knelt before him, and he asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So here we meet this dude. What do we know about this guy? There's not much that Mark gives away. We know, though, that this man is clearly desperate, right? He's desperate because he runs to Jesus, and he kneels before him. Now, Matthew's account gives us a little bit more information than Mark does. Mark, Matthew tells us this man is young, he's rich, and he's a ruler. And so this guy has affectionately become known in the Bible as the rich young ruler. But Mark doesn't let us in on that. He tells us a little bit later he's wealthy, it's true. But Mark focuses in on this man's moral goodness, good teacher, of how he fulfills all the commandments. Mark is showing us not just that he's rich, not just that he's young, not just that he's a ruler, but Mark is showing us that he's good as well. And so here we've got a young, wealthy ruler, successful man, but he's kneeling before Jesus. Not often you see someone who's rich and successful kneeling. This guy's got it all together. He's 28 years old with an MBA from one of the top universities in the country. He's become the youngest partner in the history of the firm. He's already made millions and millions of bucks. Yet, to his surprise, he's still seeking out rabbis and gurus saying, I'm still missing something. I've accomplished so much. But there's this nagging sense that there's one more thing I've got to do. And I don't know what it is. And he comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'm willing to make some changes. Tell me what to do. Verse 18, the story continues, and Jesus says to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And obviously this is a much longer conversation that Mark is recording very briefly. Jesus says God alone is good. Jesus is not saying that he isn't good, but rather what he's saying is he's saying you're looking at your goodness all wrong. You're coming at your goodness and your your thinking around your own goodness is all wrong. Verse 19 continues, you know the the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And, and, and he said to him, teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus applies the Ten Commandments really according to business. He sneaks in one there around defrauding that I don't think is in the original ten, but it, le- it leans towards business, right? He's asking, in all your business dealings, have you gained anything through, uh, through, through extorting from others? Have you gained your wealth with integrity? Have you, have you done any stealing? Have you, have you been part of any exploitation? Have you gained wealth through defrauding? And then he asks him around life in general as well. And this man passes the test. He says, all these things I have kept from my youth. Verse 21, and Jesus continues. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. It's important. We'll see that phrase toward the end. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Remember, come, follow me. Come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. It's an invitation to discipleship, just like the other 12 disciples here. And verse 22, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great great possessions. Great possessions. He had great possessions. Jesus ratchets this up. He's asking more than the law required. He said, sell everything. Follow me. And the man walked away. Let's read one last chunk before we start to unpack what it means to our lives. And Jesus looked around and he said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have left, for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. 
And the disciples were amazed at his words. Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I've heard preachers do all sorts of things with these, with these little words we've read here. Things like this. Actually, the camel is not going through a literal needle. What's happening here is in Jerusalem, there is a very short gate. And, uh, and if the camel has got baggage on its back, then the camel is not able to get through the very short gate. And so what has to happen is you've got to put a little bit of work in and you've got to take off all of the baggage from the camel. And then if you work really hard, the camel can fit through the eye of a needle, the gate in Jerusalem. And it, you see, it's actually, it's actually possible to make this thing work. Uh, or, or this one, um, actually, the Aramaic word for twine sounds very similar to the Aramaic word for camel. And, uh, and we know that it's very hard to put twine through the eye of a needle. But if you suck it, and if you pull it, and if you really work super hard, then you can fit the twine through the eye of a needle. It's, the needle, it's, just, it's just very hard to do. And, and, and all these things. But that's... There may well be an eye of a needle gate in Jerusalem. I, I, I don't know. But what Jesus is actually saying is it is impossible. That's what Jesus is saying. In verse 26, And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, Then who can be saved? It's interesting the disciples' response. It gives us a window into how people thought about um, wealth in Jesus' day. You see, they didn't see wealth as a symbol of oppression of others. If they'd seen wealth as a symbol of oppression for others... As we often kind of think of money as bad, and, uh, and so therefore people you know, who've, who've got money, we can think negatively because they must have exploited or they must have defrauded or they must have done something to get their money. And We often think negatively. They don't. If they thought of wealth as a symbol of oppression, they wouldn't have said, well, then who can be saved? They would have said something like, ah, yes, finally, this man is getting what he deserves, right? But that's not what they say. Rather, the disciples said, well, if he can't be saved, then, then, then who on earth can, you know? You see, what's going on here is in that day, the disciples saw wealth as a sign of God's blessing and of God's favor on his life. And this was confirmed by the way in which he answered the Ten Commandments question. Yes, he's done all of these things. That's why God has blessed him. You see, he is a really exceedingly good man, and that's why he has wealth. He must have been so good. He must have been so godly. That's why he is so blessed. And if he can't make it, then who can? What chance do we stand and what Jesus is doing is Jesus is breaking their way of thinking about wealth. He's teaching them that wealth is not a virtue. Wealth is not a, money is not a virtue. Neither riches nor poverty in God's kingdom is a sign of virtue. Having money and not having money is not right and wrong according to Jesus. It's not that wealth and success and power and riches are good or bad before God. Why does, he, why does he seem to speak negatively about them then, Jesus? The answer is because there's a danger associated with these things. They blind us to the greatness of our need before God. What Jesus is saying, if you really want eternal life, of course you shouldn't steal from people. Of course you shouldn't commit adultery. Of course you shouldn't defraud people. Obviously you shouldn't do bad things. But if, but if you just repent of doing bad things, all that will make you is a religious, moral person. 
If you really want to live into the fullness of what God wants for you, you've, if you really want to get over that nagging sense of something is missing from my life, no matter how many goals you achieve, no matter how successful you become, you need to change how you relate to your successes. You need to change how you relate to your wealth. You need to change how you relate to your power. You need to repent of how you've been using those things in your life. You see, good things like wealth and success and power and goodness can be used to cover over our weaknesses, to cover over our insecurities, to subtly make us feel more superior to others. Your achievements and your wealth and your success, your good works, mostly deep down, they, say, they make us in our hearts say before God, God, I've been good. Won't you, won't you answer my prayers? God, look at all I've done. Now please answer my prayers and take care of things for me. And without realizing it, actually, your wealth and your power have become your real source of confidence in life before others and before God. And God has become like your employer, not like your savior. Because actually, your wealth is your savior. Your power is your savior. Your, your success, your goodness is your savior. And God is kind of your employer who you're performing for to give you nice things. And so Jesus looks at him and he loves him and he says this. He says, I want you to imagine your life without your wealth. I want you to imagine your life with no people following you around. No more power, no more success, no more money in the bank. I want you to imagine your life without your property portfolio. It's all gone and all you have is me. Can you still live like this? Can you still live like this? And the man went away disheartened because he couldn't. And he couldn't because actually, as good as he was, as successful as he was, as blessed as he was, his spiritual center, his core identity, his ultimate place of security before other human beings in life and before God was his wealth and his power. And he couldn't stand to lose his money and his authority, and his power, and his goodness. Because if he did, he, he, he would in a sense be losing his very self. If you want to follow Jesus, will you let him replace what is at the very center of who you are? He may have kept all the other commandments, but the bottom line is he broke the first one, didn't he? You shall have no gods before me. And ultimately, Wealth and power and possessions were the God that he had before God. In coming to Jesus, he was kind of looking for peace, thinking that Christianity was, 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 like, was like that thing you put on the side to kind of add to your life, to top you up into peace. But what Jesus is saying is Christianity is not something that you add to your life. It takes the center of your very life. The call to follow Jesus doesn't add additional obligations to our lives. It's not like now you add going to church or, or, or giving money away or getting up in the Bible and, and getting up in the morning and reading your Bible. Coming, coming to, to Jesus, Jesus and followership doesn't add additional obligations to your life. Rather, it replaces uh, everything. It, it, sub, it, it subordinates all other obligations and allegiances in our lives because something altogether new has been placed at the center. And this is what he just couldn't get. Now, 
I said we'd double back and read verse 13 to 16 again together and see how this is so different in the lives of the children. Let's contrast these things. Let's read verse 13 to 16 together. And they, this is the parents now, were bringing their children to Jesus. Hey, just worth stopping here. So many dads in the room have brought your kids to church. I just love it. I think you're doing exactly what these parents were doing in those days in bringing your kids to Jesus. Moms and dads, I want to encourage you. That's why we've made available. We only allowed 100 seats in this gathering, in this moment in COVID, and we're prioritizing them for our kids for this very reason, so that parents can bring their children to Jesus, that he might touch them. And the disciples, getting back into our passage, rebuked them. The disciples rebuked the parents. Interesting, the word rebuke translated in some translations as scolded. It is the same word that Jesus used when he cast demons out of people in in the Gospel of Mark. Jesus rebuked the demons. The, The disciples are rebuking the parents. This is serious, serious stuff that they're doing here. Verse 14, and when Jesus saw this, he was indignant. The word indignant means outwardly angry. As much as earlier we read that Jesus looked at him and he loved him. There was something visible about Jesus' love for him. Now, as Jesus looks at the disciples, you you look to Jesus and he's visibly angry at them because of what they're doing. And And Jesus said to them, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For, such, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying hands on them. Now I think we often make a mistake with this little passage. Because, and I think we make the same mistake that the religious or the rich young ruler above makes. That we think that to get to the kingdom of God, we must become like children, is what Jesus is saying. And, and so far, th- we'd we be correct. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. But here's where we go wrong, and here's the error we make. Then we begin to think of all the virtues of children and think to ourselves, if I become like that, then God will accept me. Then God will bless me. And so we, we start to think of the virtues of children. If we, we must become more innocent. We must become more eager. We must become more trusting. And if we become more like these things, then God will accept us and God will bless us. Don't you see it's exactly the same thing the rich young ruler was doing? He's created a list of virtues. We're just extrapolating them now from the kids and then using those things as a means of coming to God to get him to give us what we want him to give us. That's not what's going on here. Actually, the word here used for children is a infant. It's a very little child that, that is, that is um, too young for accountability. And so it cannot be that Jesus is commending their virtues. Rather, especially in a, in a culture, an ancient culture, children weren't, weren't like, like we today, you know, a baby on board in my car, such a cool thing, babies, we love children, bless the children, serve the children, amazing, that's why we're doing this here. In those days, it wasn't like that. Children were something like you put up with until they could work on the farm, you know? They, they were, they, you know, they, they, this, middle, this little difficult ground was a, was a hard stress on your life in, in those days. Um, now we love kids and we're very affectionate to them, but not so much then. What, what Jesus was commending to them was not the virtues of the children, but the children themselves. It was their absolute vulnerability, their helplessness, their powerlessness, their their, their lack of all good things to build an identity on. 
The emphasis isn't on their virtues, it's them. They've got no credits, they've got no claims, they've got nothing to bring. Whatever a child receives is by sheer grace on the basis of their neediness and the basis of the kindness of the blesser. It's empty hands that can be filled. And unlike the children, so unlike the man who had power and possessions, the children don't walk away empty-handed. Jesus embraces them and welcomes them and blesses them. It's they who have nothing who are held by Jesus. Jesus is saying our wealth, our power, become an obstacle to us seeing our neediness before him. It's hard for those of us with wealth and power and goodness to relate to God. And it's hard for those of us with wealth and power and goodness to relate to other people like the children were relating to Jesus, bringing nothing completely desperate for something they could never have engineered themselves in order for him uh, to bless them. Does that make sense? So as we land, let me ask you the question, is Jesus really your center? Is Jesus really your center? Is he truly your security? If you're wealthy, if you're successful, if you've got a measure of power, Is there a chance that your wealth has blinded you to how great your need is before Jesus? How great your need for love and forgiveness and grace truly is? How about flipping it like Jesus flipped it for the rich young ruler? Would you be willing to trade the security of your wealth and your success and your power to embrace Christ like the little children? I mean, take a second as you sit in your homes in this auditorium. How do you answer that question? See, because if you do, if you are willing, you will discover that he tra- completely transforms your life. Christianity is like an explosion at the center of your being that makes space for an altogether new kind of life. I found myself as I prepared this message grappling with what would have happened if the man actually did what Jesus asked. What would have happened had this man actually gone and sold everything and followed Jesus just like the other disciples did? I mean, we, we, we can never properly know, but, but what, what we can do is we can look at the disciples' lives and we can extrapolate you know, and, and say, well, probably something like this. We look at the disciples' lives whose names are written in the scriptures, whose, whose lives Yes, they weren't wealthy. Yes, they weren't powerful. All of those things. But it's their lives for whom our church stands here as a legacy 2,000 years later because of what they did and how they lived and how literally they turned the world upside down. All of the center of Christianity moving around literally came because these followers did what Jesus asked. And I bet you looking from heaven, this guy who's never mentioned again in the scriptures would look back and think, I missed it. If I, if, I, if I could go back, I would have done it so differently. That life that Jesus offered him, he just couldn't see it because of the fogginess of his own enviable assets. What about you? What about you? How do you know you can really trust Jesus? Well, I love that line in the passage. He looked at him and he loved him. What did it look like? 
I mean, how, when Jesus just looked at a total stranger, how is it that all of those present, including the man himself, could see this this was love. I don't know what it looked like. What does it look like to look at a stranger in an instant and have love so outwardly visible? The only way I think it's possible as I reflect on this passage is I think it's because Jesus in some way identified with this man. Jesus too was young. He had much of his life ahead of him. Jesus too was a ruler. Jesus had the incredible wealth of heaven. Yet Jesus gives it up. He becomes a helpless baby like those in the story. He becomes poor, the son of a blue-collar stonemason. He slept on a dusty floor. He ate humble food. He never married. He had no biological children. He never owned a house. And eventually, he gave up his own life as a sacrifice for others. You see, Jesus was rich, Jesus was young, and Jesus was a ruler, and he gave it all up. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says, He who was rich became poor, that we who are poor would be rich. Jesus gives it all up for you and for me. He is not asking us to do something that he himself has not already done for us. And Jesus says to him, and he says to you, and he says to me today, I gave up my big all for you. Will you give up your little all for me? I'd love for us to land in prayer and invite Mark and Shay to come and lead us in an opportunity just to respond. I don't know what the gesture is as you sit in your homes, but for those of us here, why don't we stand before Jesus? As you sit in your home, do something that just signifies Stepping away from kind of listening mode and, and I'm more in prayerful, engage with God, respond mode now. But what does this look like for you in your life? Let's pray together. Jesus, right now we imagine you standing in front of us. I wonder, what, what is it that you would list before God? Is it your goodness? What is, it, is it your wealth? Your successful track record, perhaps? Maybe your, your bank balance and your portfolio. I don't, I don't know. It's Father's Day. Maybe you look back and you think, man, the one thing I've really done well in my life, I've raised good kids. That's, that's, my, that's my thing. Jesus says all these good things in our lives, they're not good, they're not bad. But where they can be dangerous is they can blind us to our great need before God. We can start to think of ourselves as not needing a savior. We start to miss just how desperate our plight is before him. And therefore, Jesus never gets to the center. He becomes like a bolt-on on our lives. Jesus, right now we come before you and I want to just give you a bit of space to do business with Jesus. Is Jesus at the center? Have you allowed him like that stick of dynamite that gets driven into that rock to blow open the center of your being and to put something totally different at the core of who you are? Or Jesus as a top-up, as an additional thing, Where are you at?
Today, his invitation to you is come, follow me. Leave it all behind. Follow me. Jesus, I pray for us that we'd be the kind of church where at the center of who we are, you could take away our money, you could take away our power, you could take away everything in our lives, God, but geez, please don't take Jesus away from us. That, that sense in our hearts where, where that's the core of who we are, we say, Jesus, I could stomach everything, but I couldn't imagine living without you, without your presence with me, without your work on my behalf, Jesus. It's you. It's you that I treasure above everything else. So aware of how murky and how gray and how blurry it can be. As we sing together, why don't you ask God to put his finger on what is it at the center of your life and what does it look like for him to displace that from you right now.